Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Canine's Talking Sense. It's a whole new year, 2020, and before I get too far along in this monologue here, I just want to say thank you to all of you listeners for all of this past year, your support, um, suggestions, questions, putting me in touch with some of the great guests that have been on the show and some that will be on here on season two. I can't express my gratitude enough and how much it has been humbling to have your guys' support and to know that you find this show uh, important to you or you found it as a great resource for your training or your education and information. So I am very appreciative. Thank you so much. And with that said, with season two, I have kind of put together new goals and that's going to be a whole new lineup of guests. We might bring back some uh, guests from season one uh, due to the uh, popularity of, of some of the guests or some of the information they have shared we want to kind of cover again. So there's going to be a whole new set of guests. And also, I am going to kind of focus on some goals. Uh, goals this year are going to be towards uh, puppies, young dogs, how to use selection uh, using cognition, because some of the new research that comes out this year is a carry-on from the cognitive stuff that I've been talking about over the past year. And now that the research has been going on long enough with puppies, I am going to be sharing that information. I'll be interviewing guests who specialize in the cognitive ability of puppies, what they have seen. But that will bleed into the training and imprinting of odor of those young dogs. Because one of the things I bring up frequently is we need to, here in the United States, get better at raising and selecting young dogs to go forward and become working dogs. Uh, and in this case, detection. Also, many other cases we call dual purpose, the dogs that do patrol work and detection. But I figure I can use this show with a different guests who can explain from their point of view or their experience or their education how we can go about creating a good process to create that next generation of dogs that fulfill the needs that we have in our working world. Also, that same information is just as important for those that are entering the sport world, doing nose work, doing any number of the different detection dog programs that are out there. I hope this information will also be valuable to everybody, not just the professional side, but also the hobbyist and enthusiast side. With that said, There'll be also discussions on training methodology. There will also be discussions of handler stories based on handler experiences, based on uh, things that handlers have gone through that they can share with everybody, the good, the bad, the ugly, so that way we can all learn from that. There's going to be more science involved. There's going to be new research discussed. Uh, We're going to go over things Um, from odor to behavior to, like I said, cognition. There's a lot to cover. So added to that, 
you guys have probably seen more posts or more photos of Ford K9. Ford K9 is something I've always kind of had, and Ford K9 is the parent company of K9's Talking Sense. And with the growth of K9's Talking Sense, uh, the seminars and things like that have uh, picked up pace. So I kind of wanted to explain how that works. So Ford K9 is, like I said, the parent company to K9's Talking Sense. But it moving forward, it's going to be the mobile classroom. It's going to be for seminars, for webinars, um, things of that nature. Ford K9 will be uh, what comes to you and brings you education in either of those formats, seminars or webinars. Silver State K9 is the academy or the schoolhouse or whatever you want to call it, where you come to Las Vegas, you work here with me, and go through our training on site and get to work your dog and or dogs that we have here. So it allows us to have two kind of formats, Silver State Canine, which is come to Las Vegas, work here with me, uh, go through training on site through our different uh, courses, uh, as well as seminars that we conduct here at Silver State Canine. And Ford Canine is going to be what goes out to you guys. So it's already been a pretty packed year. Um, 2020 is pretty much booked up right now until the summertime. So uh, if you want to follow either of those uh, locations, you can go to Ford K9, F-O-R-D-K-9.com. You can see the different seminars and webinars that will be uh, hosted through Ford K9. There's also a calendar on there. And what will be cool about that is you can go to that calendar and you can see where I'm going to be at throughout not only the United States, but internationally. So you might be able to look at that calendar and go, oh, wow, there's a seminar only two hours from me or what have you. Uh, you might be able to find a way to sign up for that. I'll put those uh, contact points within that calendar, um, letting you know where to go sign up and things like that. Silver State K9 also has a very similar format. Silver State K9, you go to www.silverstateknumber9.com. Go to the, through the website, scroll down, you will see the calendar of events on there as well. All of those events are what is being held at Las Vegas. So you can click on any event, register, pay, sign up, and attend any of the courses that we have here in Las Vegas. So this will help streamline and create less confusion, we hope, <laughs> allow you guys to have the option of uh, saying, hey, I would like you guys to come to me or I can't wait to go to Las Vegas. So with all of that said, on to the episode. This is an episode where it is role reversal. I am the one who gets interviewed. My good friend Pete Stevens of The Sensible Canine, who was my first guest in uh, 2019 and episode one of Canine's Talking Sense. He now wanted to interview me because he wanted people to hear my story. So, slightly uncomfortable for me. <laughs> In a way, I'm usually the one uh, asking questions and interviewing. But I hope you find value or you uh, take information in based on my experiences and what I've been through. Uh, so, with that said, no further ado, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. As usual, if you have any questions, you can send them to me on email at Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at Ford, F-O-R-D, 
fordk9.com. So that's Cameron at fordk9.com. On to the episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. This is the first episode of 2020. And with it being a new year, I am going to do something different, which is I get to be in the hot seat. I get to be interviewed. I have my friend Pete Stevens, uh, who has been uh, very motivated to uh, have a chance to interview me versus always everybody hearing me interview somebody else. So with that said, Pete, I'm going to hand the reins off to you. And I'll say this. We tried this once already and it didn't work out because thank goodness in the sense the memory card I had uh, it was corrupted and didn't work out. But uh, so part two or take two, here you go. The reins are in your hands. Okay, my brother. I appreciate it. Hey, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this um, reverse roles, if you will, is because whenever you ask um, your guests to kind of give their backgrounds, you know, we, they get about, you know, a good five, ten minutes to give out their backgrounds uh, uh, on what they're doing. But nobody, unless they know you and have trained with you in person, is going to know your background and where you're coming from and the different experiences that you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the I know you pretty well. I know a lot of your, your background. I think it's real important for people to understand, understand the path that you took to get where you're at. So if you can, um, sure. do me and just kind of give me the Reader's Digest version mm-hmm. of um, just like, how did you get started? I mean, was it something that, you know, you've always wanted to do and you grew up in it? Or, you know, was it, uh, um, I know you have a little bit of a military background. Um, law enforcement, stuff like that. So give us give us the gist on how you started in the world of canine. Okay. So in uh, as a young kid growing up, uh, the neighbor I had was the gentleman. His name is Bob Gailey. Bob started uh, basically canine in most of Florida, specifically central Florida. So as a little kid, I got to see these German Shepherds, Rottweilers, Dobermans right there next to me in my backyard, and it scared the hell out of me in the beginning, but then... So you're literally saying that he was like your next-door neighbor, not like a guy down the street. It's correct. Like, no. Right the chain-link fence, fence divided my backyard and his backyard with those uh, uh, pretty strong dogs right there, always you know barking at me as a little kid and things like that. And uh, that, that fear... Um, also, I guess, subconsciously motivated me to want to know more about them and, and get around them. So uh, I ended up doing um, kind of being the kid hanging out in his driveway. Every time his dogs were out, I wanted to pet them and hang out with them. And he quickly, I think, saw that he could bring me around to these uh, demonstrations and so forth and show the public, uh, hey, look, these big, bad dogs um, – can hang around like a little kid. So back in the days of station wagons, I used to ride around the back of his station wagon with uh, these big German shepherds, Rottweilers, and one of his Dobermans named Rowdy. And uh, he would take me around. And then, um, you know, through just different things moving in life um, as a little kid, you know, he moved away and then we moved to another part of central Florida. And then uh, I fast forward to my first year in college. I'm taking some classes with, uh, it happens to have some cops in it. So, um, they were kind of like, Hey, you should think about law enforcement. So I decided to go do a ride along. I had to go to a sheriff's office to go fill out the uh, ride along form driving away. 
I see uh, um, the canine guys training on the side of the where their little canine field was next on the roadway. So I pull over, watch, and then uh, one of the guys, of course, walks over. Hey, can we help you? And I just said, hey, I, I, I love this stuff. I grew up next to the guy that did this. Uh, and the guy asked me who that was. I said, oh, that's Bob Gailey. And he goes, well, he's over there. Now, mind you, it had been about seven years since I had seen him. So the guy yells, hey, Bob, some kid named Cameron's over here, says he knows you. And then from that day on, I was at his new facility, and I was cleaning kennels, taking dogs for walks, doing all kinds of stuff. And uh, that kind of that took me to the police part of it, where he would host um, classes you know, back then we had four, uh, Florida had 400 hour, uh, I won't say mandatory courses, but if you didn't do a 400 hour course, uh, you were outside of what the industry typical standard was. So I would hang out and watch those classes and, and be the little, you know, groupie, you know, guy, I just wanted to do it so bad. Um, so I sat through an entire class, didn't really do anything besides watch. And then when the next class started, um, he, one of the guys, uh, a guy named Mike Ansley, who has since passed away some years ago, uh, threw a sleeve down at my feet and said, "Hey, you're you're done uh, watching," and uh, put the sleeve on and start catching dogs. So I go go ahead. When you um when you were doing the the, the this train this warning class, was this a patrol class or was it both the patrol detection? Uh, what was the, the gist of the class? Yeah, it was dual purpose. So the majority of the hours, of course, were spent on the patrol the which is the your obedience tracking building search area search kind of stuff so uh so what was the kind of training that they did back then um you know where i know we we talked about going through these different phases where 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 was that style was it like the aggressive alert like we used to see mm -hmm. back in the day mm -hmm. or what, what was it yeah I, it was a majority of the dogs that were doing detection at that time were aggressive alert dogs um the passive alert thing was just barely starting. I think uh, if I remember right, one of the classes that I was in, uh, that guy, Mike Ansley, that I, I mentioned a second ago, had a Labrador and he was going to train it to be passive alert. And that was one of the few that we had seen. And he did a pretty good job with that too. And that was, like I said, a concept that was foreign to us uh, because everything else was aggressive alert. We'd have the like gravel piles and we would like hide the dog's toy and and do these different techniques to get digging, 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 digging to get that that active alert or scratch alert uh, really strong. Was that even for the explosive dogs for the um, aggressive alert? No, it was all drug dogs. There was no bomb dogs that I was around at that time. Um, everything was just uh, straight dope dogs, dual purpose so narco patrol. This uh, this sleeve gets thrown at your feet, and, mm -hmm. uh, and now what? So I basically, since I sat there and watched, and there's another good friend of mine uh, who I consider you know, still a mentor. He recently retired some years ago named Kurt Dumond. Kurt uh, was a, a brand new or younger deputy at that time, and he was doing a majority of the uh, decoy or helper work. So I kind of did my best to imitate him and imitate Mike and how they decoyed the dogs because those two guys did a lot of the uh, – heavy lifting throughout those classes when it came to decoy work. So I basically imitated them. And uh, if we weren't doing field work, I was laying tracks or I was hiding in buildings or, or, you know, if it was an area search, I was the, the, the decoy to be uh, shoved in a vehicle or whatever for so the dogs could go out and go find you. 
So when you did the the laying of the tracks, uh, at the end of those tracks, was there uh, what kind of reward was the dog given? Was it a toy or the apprehension portion of it? I would say a majority of those back at that time would have been uh, an apprehension. So I was either having the sleeve, um, maybe occasionally the suit, but mostly sleeve. But then again, like I said, there was also plenty of times too we would uh, once the dog you know indicated or found me through you know I was either concealed in a way where I couldn't be bitten, so the dog had to bark to indicate that I, that it found me. Uh, then I'd either step out, show my hands, and comply. Um, in some cases, even toss a toy to the dog. Um, uh, there's a couple different you know techniques, just kind of depending on the situation or the goal of that training back then. Yeah, because I know that when uh, you know when I first was learning, uh, when we did high finds, uh, we would throw the toy down. Um, and give the dog, you know, the toy would be on a long line, and, and we would give the dog a, a you know quote a fight from the sky. Um, and make them do it. so something kind of similar to that. So now you're doing the the decoy work and you're in college. Um, what happened from there? So after doing that for a couple of years, um, it, I was kind of like a rudderless ship. I didn't know quite what I wanted to do. And a lot of the guys in the class, um, and the various classes that were going on, uh, as well as family members, were telling me, "Hey, you know, you should probably look at doing the military." And uh, through some, you know, I would say uh, strong family discussions and uh, some advice from some from family members and friends that were well versed in, in military and stuff like that, uh, really kind of said, you know what, this is going to if you enter the service in one of the branches or another, you this will help, you know, mold you, turn you into a man Um allow you to have a foundation in something and of course the benefits of being in the military of having um you know an extended family per se but then also the support to further your education so through you know the va uh loans and and the gi bill and things like that uh, afforded opportunities so i you know kind of him hot about it and then finally you know i had reached a point in my life where you know, like I said, I wasn't going anywhere. I, w- I was 22 and I was, you know, like I said, I, I knew I wanted to do something with dogs. I just didn't know what it was. I wanted to be in law enforcement, but I wasn't quite old enough to really be mature enough, I would say, for agencies to go, hey, that's a great prospect, you know? So, right. so after some family discussions, I decided, okay, I'll go check out the Air Force. Um, and you know, the reason behind that was, uh, one of my, uh, uncles told me, they're like, Hey, you know, uh, here's what I can tell you each branch, you know, the war fighter typically is the lowest common denominator. So, you know, say army, Marine Corps, whatever, it's going to be your grunts where in the air force, your war fighter is your pilot. So when the war fighter is the officer, Things tend to be generally better and your bases and so forth are generally going to be uh, nicer or easier. And, of course, there's all the jokes that are out there, the chair force and this and the other. But I can say, you know, there's there was truth to that where um, the Air Force, it's just um, a a different mentality. Again, you know, because you are catering to the warfighter who is an officer, who's a pilot and so forth. And with that comes, you know for lack of a better term, there's perks to that. Uh, and everybody was right. You know, most cases, Air Force bases are a nice place to go to. Um, they're not as, I would say, um, 
not run down, but just not as old or, you know, kind of make it do, make do kind of thing. So I went in the Air Force and luckily enough, that happens to be uh, the schoolhouse for all military working dogs go through Lackland. So right. once I went through basic and then I went through the law enforcement school, I was selected to go through the military working dog school. And back at that time, it was what they call pipeline. So I went from, uh, like I said, basic to the law enforcement academy and then straight from the law enforcement academy to the military working dog school. So you hadn't even really gone out in the field as no, military yeah. law enforcement yet, you're, but you're going straight in there. Because I know, you know, we, we know most of it in the, uh, you know, local law enforcement state, even federal, um, you kind of got to cut your teeth and sure. patrol and become that. So really, when you're talking pipeline, you're talking you know, yep. boot camp, mm-hmm. uh, law enforcement academy. Never going out making an arrest or doing yeah, anything. No, and, and getting handed a dog. Exactly. And the irony behind that is about a year and a half later, the policy changed and the the thing moving forward was you had to be an E four or above to get into the military working dog school. And the Air Force at that time pretty much there was maybe an exception here and there, but all the other branches kind of made you to be the same rank. You had to be E4 or above, which meant you had to have at least about three years of service already you know, under your belt before they allowed you the opportunity to go to the military working dog school where the Air Force was pipeline. Like you said, these greenhorns you know, has never even done any law enforcement experience and then being sent off to the military working dog school and then going to their base straight away as a dog handler. And, and I can say there was, there's some advantages to that, I guess, maybe numbers wise, but you know, the way I always kind of laughed at or thought to myself, I was like, that's surprising. Um, the investment uh, that they put into you to train you through all of that. Um, and if you choose to leave after four years, um, there's significant investment in that education and that training. And then you're within three years later, you're or almost four years later, let's say you're out. So, so that's when, what you, I did. when you when you were at Lackland, mm-hmm. uh, tell me about the kind of detection training. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that it's going to be uh, you've. I would assume most military working dogs, from my understanding, are dual purpose. Yeah. So the dogs I that you know, so we have um, uh, training block one and training block two. Block one was uh, where you learn all the obedience and the bite work and the control work, things like that, and then block two was where you learn detection and the dogs that you work with at that time, ironically, here's the best part for people that do nose work. The dogs that they used at that time to do detection or teach you detection were dogs that were only trained on anise. And that was because they weren't, these dogs weren't necessarily strong enough or they had some issue or another that prevented them from being put with a military base. So the dogs were kept behind and used. They were good enough to be, schoolhouse dogs. So to give you the skill set to go out there and uh, learn um, the practical, the basic, you know, leash control, foot, you know, your your um, footwork, uh, reading a dog, all of those things, those dogs were fine for, but they basically every uh, eight weeks or so got a new handler and went through another school. And so they, those dogs knew the, knew the system. And, but with that said, that allowed us train handlers who didn't know anything, um, some advantages to, you could make mistakes, you could do things and it wasn't going to have an effect on the dog and those dogs were not operational. So 
but the funny part of looking back now is those dogs were trained on Annis just like as nose work dogs were too. So, and that was also my first, um, introduction to passive alert dogs. So like I said, with the police world at that time, and, and I, I need to get date this. So from 93 to 95, 96, I was in Florida, you know, cleaning kennels, helping out with police classes, being a decoy, all that kind of stuff. 96 moving forward, that's when I was in the Air Force. So at 96 is when I got to see more uh, passive alert detection training going on. And that was through the military and the Air Force way, which was still kind of similar to what happens today, depending on where you're at. I mean, it was, they would use cardboard boxes instead of wood boxes. Um, you'd have the all go down boxes and you present box one. And it was a lot of handler uh, direction, a lot of check here, check there. The dog wasn't allowed to pass you by and uh, a, a lot more human involvement than there ever should have been. But that was the military way, which was, Hey dog, I will tell you what to do, how to do it, when to do it. So, the so did you spend too different? Did you spend all your time in the Air Force at Lackland, or did you get to move around? Yep, I got to move around. So after some time at Lackland, and as that transition was going on, I had some time where I was, you know, even at the training house some as well. But then I got sent to uh, Germany. And luckily enough, uh, at first I was all bummed out about going to Germany. I really wanted to stay in Florida to be, or I wanted to have orders to Florida so that way I could be around my friends. And that same guy, Bob Gailey, when I called him up and told him, I said, Hey, um, man, I can't believe this. I'm bummed out. I got to go to Germany. This is where I got orders from. And he said, shut the hell up. I don't want to ever hear you complain about the fact that you're being stationed in Germany. Do you not remember where majority of our training, education, and dogs come from? They come from Germany. They come from Europe. And you're getting the opportunity to, to live there for, you know, at that time it would have been three years, for three years, and you get to be around all of that, and you want to complain because you can't go back home to Florida and train with us? He's like, just stop talking now. So from that that moment on, I was kind of like, oh, he's got a point there. So you were telling, um, you, know, and I, you know, I've talked over over beers over this, and, you you know, um, I know you got some really good opportunities um, when you were um, in Germany, not just in Germany. I'd love for you to kind of tell the listeners about the stuff in Germany, but I also know that you got to go to Holland as well. And I, I want you to, if you can, after you talk about Germany a little bit, uh, talk about getting into Holland and all the people that you got to train with and the different, and also if you could, um, the progression in the training and, and what you saw that was different that they were doing that, um, we had not gotten to yet. Sure. So the, so I get, I get to Germany, um, you know, my first year or so I'm just getting, you know, I'm kind of learning the rules and the, it was good and bad having prior experience in dogs before I got in the military was, had some good, but it also caused me some headache because, you know, I viewed there was potentially better ways to train a dog than some of the old school military ways. But, you know, when you're in the military, you have to go do it the military way. And sometimes I got my hand slapped for not, you know, following the military rules versus uh, um, doing what I 
thought or what I learned was better, you know, for the dog. Ironically, one of the books I read was from Doc Stuart Hilliard. And I was reading that book at the time that he, one of those first ones that he put out and about a year and a half later, he ended up taking over the, or becoming the civilian in charge of the military working dog program. So a lot of the things that I was getting in trouble for became, you know, commonplace later on. So, um, but within, after that year where, you know, I was the new guy, um, I then ended up moving off base and getting a house in town of, you know, in Ramstein. Um, and within the first few weeks of living at this house, I would hear dogs barking in this big cornfield behind where I lived, uh, on certain nights of the week. So finally I decided, Hey, I'm going to go walk out in that field and cut through it and see what I can find or what's, what are these dogs barking for? And, uh, sure enough, I go to the field. It's a Schutzen club at the other end of the field. So I go in there. Hey, does anybody speak English? I'm a little American soldier, you know, airman over at the base. And of course, everybody speaks perfect English. So uh, lucky me, I make some really good friends over there who took me under their wing and really, you know, I knew Schutzen before, again, because of my civilian time, you know, that same guy, Bob, he also had a Schutzen club in that area. And I would go to Schutzen club nights and, and help train and do things. So I was familiar with it. But um, being in Germany, of course, I really got better uh, educated and understanding why the program exists and what was about it. And then the other bonus was uh, one of the members of the club was a German police dog handler, a German Pulitzer handler. And his name is Ro- his name is Roland. Roland was a great. I mean, I still consider him a good friend to this day, even though it's been a long time since I've seen him. But Roland spoke perfect English. Um, he and I collaborated and would set up training between his Pulitzer canine unit and our military working dog unit on the base. And throughout, no, is that something? Is that something very common? Um, back then, no. Back then, it was not common. I, I think in other regions of Europe or Germany, I would say, uh, there were, it would either be army units or other Air Force units. Um, people would branch out, but, you know, at that time, there was still a little bit of hesitation, especially with some of the ranking kennel staff that I worked for that, you know, again, I don't blame them. All they knew was the military way. They did not want to deviate from that style of training or that uh, methodology. And the Germans were different, you know, and, but to the credit of the supervisors I had at the time, I think they were curious too. So that allowed, and that opened the door. So we did joint training. We got together and would do stuff and they, and they offered suggestions to help us out with some of the problem dogs we had or various issues we were running into. They would say, Hey, you might want to try this or try that. So, uh, it was highly beneficial uh, back then to have that relationship, to work together and to get to see things, you know, and for me, I was more personally motivated to, uh, do more than just that. So in my free time, whenever that was possible, I would go meet up with the Pulitzer guys or go to the, uh, what they call the Dean's Tundafuer school over there near where I was at. And, uh, I'd go watch and go hang out and just, you know, I'd go to other Schutzen clubs and, meet other people and, and go learn. And I, and I use that as a stepping stone. I made it kind of my, my mission while I was over there to go to each country and learn what and how they do dogs. So Germany, it was Schutzen IPO. Those were the main ones that they did. But in obviously France, it was French ring and Mondio ring a little bit. 
over in uh, Belgium, it was NVBK, which is kind of like a hybrid of Mondio and French Ring. And then in Holland, it was KNPV. So um, as I kind of traveled around and made friends in the different countries and spent time learning each program and and doing those things, um, I mean, there was just some awesome people uh, that that allowed me to uh, be exposed to the things that I would never have ever got a chance to do. There's a guy named Germain Powells. He was the president of MVBK in Belgium at the time. Uh, Bart Ballon, who is who is famous now in the states for oh, his, absolutely for his knee poker yeah, training. Yeah, exactly. I don't think there's probably a whole lot of working people are in the in this field that don't know uh, Bart Ballon. No, and, and the funny part is when I first met him, it was a seminar with him and Dr. Helmut Reiser and those that know oh, Schutzen. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Helmut Reiser is a big deal there, especially back in those days. Uh, yeah, and so in, literally wrote the book, Dear Schutzen. Yes, you know? exactly. So in 99, I'm in a German dog club watching, sitting there and all in German. And I'm doing my best to understand is Dr. Helmut Reiser and Bart Ballon doing a seminar. So I, I really got lucky to, you know, be exposed to those things and then take that knowledge, um, what they would, those people would share with me, so I could understand the dogs better from those different regions because a Malinois from Belgium and the NVPK program is totally different than a Malinois from Holland that's been trained in KNPV. So, you know, as I progressed in my training and education, I had a better understanding of why and how. So near the end of my uh, service commitment with the Air Force, um, there was a colonel on base who really liked dogs. And ironically, later on, she became the head uh, uh, officer in charge of the entire military working dog program some years after I came across her. Um, but back then, Colonel Hertog, she actually was a, became a, I think she ended as a two-star general. But uh, anyway, she she took a, a, a fancy to the dogs and, and she would see me training. And uh, through conversations with her, I ended up being allowed to go to the German police dog handler school uh, in that region. And Roland, who was that guy I met, the Pulitzer handler who I met at the club, was becoming an instructor. So thanks to him, uh, I got the invite and I had my own Malinois at home. I wasn't able to do it with a military dog because we had to keep those dogs trained that same way. But I, I got to take a Malinois I had personally and go through that school uh, the last uh, little bit of time I had left. And while I went through the Dean's Tundafuer School with my dog, I was able to earn the title of what they called at that time DPO one and DPO two. And while I was there, you know, the internet was just starting to have like chat rooms and and dog related kind of things where people could get to know each other from across the world. So there was an old list called the Malinois Handler. And through that list, I met people like Ivan Balabanov, Michael Ellis, uh, Ed Frawley from Learburg Video, Kevin Sheldahl from uh, Albuquerque area. And all those people I ended up crossing paths with in Europe when another one was a guy named Simon Prince. He was a Dutch police guy, a Dutch police dog handler. Um, him and some other individuals that actually came to the German police dog school one day were, you know, kind of you know looked at me as the novel american and they gave an invite to me when i was able to to come out to nunspeed to see the scent dog school that they had going on so i got lucky and and uh, again right place right time when my uh training ended with a german uh, pulitzer class 
I went to Holland and spent some time uh, with Simon Prinz and got the full tour and exposure to the Dutch scent dog school. So I got to meet Dr. Abby Schoen. Dr. Abby Schoen is the one who kind of at that time was making, she was a psychologist and she was kind of looking at things from a more scientific approach when it came to detection. So she created things like rolling dice. Rolling the dice would create whatever the number was would tell you either how to set up a training scenario for detection dogs. Um, and then a specific case was they were doing the scent ID dogs where they would take uh, an item of evidence that was you know found from a crime scene, uh, save it, and then when they had a potential suspect, they could have that suspect hold on to these metal tubes. The There was also what they call a suspect X, which is somebody who's not part of the situation, but the dog still had to identify this person through the same methodology, which was you have the crime scene evidence, and then you have your suspect who holds these metal you know, uh, bars. And then the lawyer for that individual could pick out who he wanted sub, uh, suspect X to be. So it could be a family member. It could be somebody from the local area close to this guy because they're going to eat the same foods, drink the same things. So the potential for odor to be similar was, was potentially there as well. So anyway, suspect X would be picked. Suspect X would hold his metal pipes. Uh, again, these people don't get to see each other per se. So the handler and the the crime scene individuals for the uh, scent ID have uh, – everything's very controlled. So once the pipes have been held, um, the they're taken into an area. Again, there's no handler involved yet. The There's two in, – in a room, there's – the left side of the room has uh, – and I'm going to probably have this wrong. But let's just say it was like one, two, three, four, five, six on one side of the room on the, on a floor. There's like these painted lines. And in between these painted lines, like a clasp and the metal pipe that that person would hold would be placed at, let's say, spot number four. But on the other side of the room where there was another line set of lines of one through five or one through six, uh, it would be, let's say, spot one. And how that was determined was by like rolling the dice. The rolling the dice would say, okay, if you rolled two and a six, you go to 26 on the little form and it would say suspect um, uh, true suspect is going to be spots, you know, four and one suspect X is going to be two and three, you know, accordingly. So once that area is set up, then all the other spots are filled with distractor pipes, just pipes held by other people. They have nothing to do with suspect X or the main suspect. So once the area is set up, dog handler enters the room. He takes the item of one of these items of evidence that belongs to suspect X because suspect X would touch like a knife or some other type of type of thing. So that way it was similar in nature. He would take that and let the dog sniff it. And then the dog would go down those lines. The dog would go down the first line. Let's say it was on the left side of the room. The dog would go down those first one through six. He would start indicating by like biting at the pipe that smelled the same as the evidence that was just introduced to the dog. If the dog's correct, a green light comes on in the room because through a camera system or a two-way mirror, uh, the the, te- the test proctor could confirm. So the light would turn green. The handler could release the pipe from the ground, the little holder. The dog would play with it. And then they go over the other line. And if the dog correctly identified suspect X both times, he now moves on to the true suspect. The cool thing about that is that means the dog actually would sniff over the suspect to begin with. 
So it identified somebody else besides him to start the whole thing off. And then now the piece of evidence is the dog is allowed to sniff. The dog does the exact same thing. And if the dog correctly indicates to the correct spots on both lineups, it would kind of tie through the dog that piece of evidence to that person. So well, it's, um, it's good that, you know, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying and on the randomness, a randomness of the numbers yeah. with the roll of the dice. And that kind of seems like I could, your first exposure to a scientific approach. Yes. To, uh, um, you know, anything in the canine world. Correct. Uh, I, I was uh, fascinated by that. I even have, uh, and this is before I ever did, obviously, podcasts or thought of interviewing people for anything, but um, by meeting Ed Frawley when I was in Europe, you know, Ed was making films and, and doing things with different dog competitions. I decided, um, and these were back with those, those small tapes. Back when we had, you know, you went from the camcorder that was a VHS tape to a camcorder right. that you could fit in your hand. So I have a bunch of these tapes still to this day where I basically just put the camcorder on a little tripod and talked to Dr. Abby Shoon for probably, I don't know, an hour or two. And I recorded the whole thing. I just asked her all kinds of questions because this scientific approach approach was new to me. Mm-hmm. And I I was fascinated by it because it made sense. It made sense to kind of take us out of the equation as best as possible and allow the dog to make a decision. And, you know, since that project has been around in Holland for a long time, it has since been, uh, there's been issues that came of it and they've made changes and it no longer really exists anymore. But it was the first time for me and many of us in the dog world detection side of things where so- that was, to me personally, that's where I first saw science come into our, our dog world. This episode is brought to you by the Sensible Canine, making sense of scent work. The Sensible Canine is owned and operated by Pete Stevens. Pete Stevens has a vast experience in detection dogs, and myself and Elliot Zibley were the first three uh Three bald guys everybody remembers us as working together uh, putting out various seminars under sensible canine and it has since grown to what it is today and keeps Pete pretty busy sensible canine is uh, a education and workshop based uh, business Pete goes to your area or you come out to Southern California and go through various types of seminars where we focus on the skill sets needed um, most times geared towards nose work but these days it's expanding to all types of scent work uh, professional and sport so look up uh, the sensible canine the website is exactly that the i will put a link in the show notes contact them set up a seminar or come to one of the seminars that we host Uh, many times in the Southern California area, but soon we will have our first sensible canine in Las Vegas at the Silver State Canine Facility. So again, look up the sensiblecanine.com. It's k9.com for the end of that. But again, I'll have the show notes. We'll have the web link there for you. 2019 has been a wonderful year here at Silver State Canine. And we are so thankful for all of you who have come to either our handler courses, our trainer courses, or our seminars. 2020 is already starting off to be a busy year for us. And we created a new calendar that will be on our website and on our social media feeds. If you are looking for a handler class, 
or you're looking for a trainer's class, contact us. Our classes are focused on proven scientific and psychological training methodology that helps you train and communicate to your dog in a much more efficient and effective way. We also offer seminars in a variety of topics, and now we have added even bite work and protection work to the courses and classes that we have here at Silver State Canine. Also, if you're looking for a trained detection dog, contact us. We customize each dog that we train for any of our clients based on your needs. And in this process, we work with you step by step from selecting the dog to the training of the dog to then the handler school that you'll go through when you pick the dog up. So again, if you're looking for any of our Silver State Canine services to include our mobile classroom where we come to you, contact us. Info, I-N-F-O, at silverstatecanine.com or just go visit our website. We've redesigned it, updated it, www.silverstatecanine.com. That's silverstatekthenumber9.com. Are you looking for a canine record-keeping software program? Look no further than Cats Canine. I use Cats Canine myself. I can tell you the Cats Canine Activity Tracking System is a dynamic record-keeping program designed specifically for canine operations, training, deployments, and as well as keeping track of expenses of dogs, their veterinary care, x-rays, I'm telling you, the amount of information that you can put into this program is amazing. And the information it gives back to you helps either justify why you're doing things a certain way, gives you specific numbers on deployments, the specific numbers in training. How often are you running a certain training aid? How often are you doing tracks? How long are the tracks? If it comes to apprehension, How much apprehension? Is it scenario-based? Is it working on certain issues? I'm telling you guys, this program is a huge help. I, like I said, use it here in Las Vegas. Um, One of the amazing things that I really like about it is how I can, let's say for me in my area, as the instructor or trainer for that day, I set up and document that training. Those others that are in my area that are also on CATS I can quickly share to them what that training was that day. So they don't have to come over to me and go, hey, Cameron, what aid was that that you put out? And what was the size of it? And what was the set time? They don't have to do any of that. All they have to do is already be on the CATS program. And when I'm done setting up the training and I put out the uh, information into CATS on my end, all I do is share. I just go down, click, click, click to all those that were there that day. And it shares right to them uh, all the training that we conducted to include my notes that I made on observation as a trainer and instructor for that canine team. So they can still put in their information, uh, what they saw their dogs do, but mine as the instructor and trainer is also there. So I'm telling you, hands-on experience, uh, I really enjoy using this program. So this has been around a long time. He's been helping uh, Bob Eaton is the creator of, of CATS. And he has developed this since 1992. It was the first software ever developed for law enforcement canine operations and continues to be an industry leader. So go to catsplatinum.com. That is K-A-T-S-P-L-A-T. 
C-A-T-S-P-L-A-T-I-N-U-M.com. Catsplatinum.com. Go check it out. Mark your calendars for February 28th through March 1st. So that's February 28th, 29th, and March 1st. Come out to Las Vegas. Come to the Sniff and Bite seminar with myself and Carlos Ramirez. We held our first Sniff and Bite seminar in Ocala, Florida back in November, and it was a great success, and we decided to bring the show to Las Vegas. Carlos will be coming out. We break the three days up into a day and a half of detection and a day and a half of bite work and decoy skills. So if you're looking to enhance your skills as a decoy, come to the seminar. If you're looking to enhance your skills in detection work or to work with your dogs and understand certain scientific or cognitive approaches to detection work, come to the seminar. If you want to do some problem solving with bite work and have somebody experienced as a decoy as Carlos is, come to the seminar. To sign up, just contact me, email me at Cameron at FordK9.com, C-A-M-E-R-O-N at Ford, F-O-R-D-K, the number nine.com, Cameron at FordK9.com. Email me with Sniff and Bite and that you want to sign up for the one in February in Las Vegas. Those dates, one more time, February 28th, 29th, and March 1st here in Las Vegas. Hope to hear from you guys. It'll be a great event. Okay, so you, you're in the military now. You're still in the military. I know you're getting ready to get out. So yep. we'll, we'll jump forward just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know you, you moved back to Florida. Correct. You started your own canine company. You were yep. doing fantastic with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Universal Canine, not to be confused with the <laughs> other Universal Canine that's been in the news as of late. You had already sold yes. the Universal Canine. Um, and then I want to kind of get to the points. Uh, I know you were, uh, uh, you were a cop in Florida. Yep. Uh, you went to a different couple of different agencies. You mm-hmm. got stoked and got to work uh, a great dog uh, for an agency in Florida. And um, then this great opportunity came up for you to kind of do some training with a private company. Well, um, the the area you have the area you have there is so yeah you're correct. I had my business Universal Canine. I trained obviously numerous dogs all over Florida or and, and sold actually I did a, I did a, I was a vendor that was my main thing and I sold equipment um, okay. and I and I sold Schweikert which was a German company that was really famous still is um, and I sold that stuff so that kind of got me going in the dog community stateside um, and then uh, had a, offered crazy money for the property my uh, my right. facility That's was right. on yeah and then I became a cop so I became a cop. And I was already a state qualified instructor at that time because I had done a numerous canine schools. So I became a, a police officer for one of the local cities that was right next to where my kennel facility was at. And uh, I was canine trainer. I, you know, I still maintain, you know, the training of the dogs. Um, and then the ad- ad- additional agencies, same thing. Um, everything I did in Florida was more of the trainer aspect or assisting in training. And then I went to Texas. And oh, got, that's right. Yeah. But real quick, um, what was the difference between um, the training that you did um, in the military and um, in the military style standard of training, mm-hmm. uh, for, specifically for detection work, to what you, when you came back from going from these different places, from 
you know, the um, Polizei School in Germany mm-hmm. to uh, um, mm-hmm. Holland and all these other, what, what were the, the biggest changes that you, you tweaked? What did, what did you change? The biggest thing was, of course, stay out of the way of the dog. The dog knew where odor was at, and the more you got in the way, the more a problem there was. Uh, the Dutch were very good about letting the dogs work. They they also did a very, what I would call a concentrated scent pattern. And I say scent patterns, what the dog did. And you'll still see that today. There's a, a friend of mine, Tobias, those that watch on the internet and Facebook and things like that. You'll see a lot of times European dogs will do these bricks with like three holes in them. Every brick has three holes. So the dog does a very tight but very detailed search pattern. And that was very common in Europe. But the handler's out of the equation. The dog's doing the job. So that was different from what I was used to where it was you know, a lot of handler presentations. So I saw that. I really liked it, um, started applying it. And then because of um, the, the – I think the thing you got confused with when I came back to Florida, I had a bomb dog that I had trained in the, in the military – in that bomb dog, I was the only one. And the irony was I got my explosive training aids on 9-10 and then 9-11 happened. And I was the only guy in town at that point that had explosive training aids to work with that was not a law enforcement agency. And even out of the law enforcement agencies that, it, that were out there, hardly any had bomb dogs. So I quickly got thrust into the position of being a bomb dog handler, uh, civilian, but working a bomb dog uh, for the local international airport that was in that area and then going down and doing cruise ships and searching all the stuff going on cruise ships for months. And then that kind of bled up to all the things that we were talking about a minute ago. So then um, that, that, bom- that going into being a bomb dog handler really required me to search a large number of area uh, or a vast space to search compared to a drug dog where most of my search was a smaller or confined area. So that you know, what the lessons I had learned in Europe and with the military kind of overlapped a little bit. And then at that same time is when Kenny Licklider kind of took off in the dog world with his business and that, and those wooden boxes where you could, you know, put your hand in one side and pop the toy out from the top. And, right. and that was like a game changer for the passive alert dogs. So I adopted that. I, I took what I saw there. I met Kenny and, and my other good friend, Bill Heiser, and his business in Florida. The funny part was I had the bomb stuff. Bill had the narcotics. We would get together basically every night of the week and do training. And he'd bring his training aids. I'd bring my training aids. And we would just train dogs night after night. And uh, because of uh, the training aids I had and what he had, it allowed him to also – he had a bomb dog ready. So the two of us were, were pretty busy. Um, from let's say nine eleven until at least the beginning of that uh, of two thousand two, uh, getting getting dogs trained and stuff like that. So that kind of because of that, that was where I really got familiar with the passive alert indication and utilizing the thought process of rewarding from source, and it, it had its value. And and Kenny was preaching the 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 rules of stay out of the dog's way, you know, just kind of point to the direction you want the dog to go, which matched Europe because again, Kenny was one of the first European, you know, major vendors here in the States that would get lots of dogs. So he would share those same things with all of us. Uh, and I kind of was familiar with part of it, just not, he had, he had actually put it to a system, which was, uh, was still, he still uses to this day. Um, so that's kind of how I evolved to that point as a civilian. And then I became, like you said, I became a cop. And then both Florida, then I moved while I was a cop in Florida, I was because of my business, 
Um, I was still being reached out to by various government contract firms looking for dogs and this, that, and the other. And they needed bodies. They needed people to train. Um, they needed dogs trained. And I just had a phone call one day and the guy was just like, Hey, you know, you can, you know, we, you know, what are you making as a cop? And I was only making it in the high forties. He said, you know, I can easily double that and you get to just train dogs and handlers deploying overseas. And I, you know, and I, and I had the realization at that time, I liked being a cop. I really did. And I, and I had a chance to do SWAT and things like that, but I loved working the dogs and being a cop held me back from being able to go train as much as I wanted to. I could train with my units and, you know, and I was still utilized quite a bit from neighboring agencies who knew me from my business, even though I was now a cop for a neighboring city, we would get together and do joint training and things like that. But that's only once a week or maybe sometimes every couple weeks or something. So my yearning to work dogs was still really strong. Uh, so I made the decision. I said, you know what, I'm going to pursue my dream and, you know, get into this. So ended up in Texas and trained lots of uh, teams, you know, going overseas. Uh, I worked at a facility that had um, a company that we, we uh, contracted to pumping out lots of dogs, lots of handlers. And, and, and the, the downside to that is when you're pushing out numbers, you're not putting in as much time as you would like to as a trainer into the dogs. Um, because of course the companies make money when there's boots on the ground overseas. So, you know, you got to do what you got to do to get these teams done and you really want more. So luckily enough, the company I worked for ended up kind of breaking away and doing its own thing. But the downside was we weren't the cheapest game in town. So within, uh, within about a two year span, um, they decided to fold up shop and, uh, focus on, you know, the company was, it was bought out like three times. So I, I laugh because those that know me were always like, man, you keep switching jobs. I'm like, I'm doing the same thing. It's just a different company's hat. I get to wear, because <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. It's just, it's a, new just company. a different logo. Yeah, yeah just yeah, different logo, different, different paycheck. Logo. So, and that's how I, you know, me and you met was at one of those, uh, I think it was at, it was at Hits in Seattle. And right. uh, I was working yeah, at I Booth was, for the company. I was, uh, I was working for with uh, guys over at Ray Allen Manufacturing, mm-hmm. and uh, you were working for that company. And then our eyes locked, and two bold guys are like, hey, you look bored. I'm bored. Let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but then um, the cool thing happened. I mean, not that everything leading up to this wasn't cool. Uh, it was cool for me because next thing I know, you're in my neck of the woods. Oh, yeah. Uh, out here in beautiful San Diego. So t- uh, how did you end up out here and what did you do when you were out here? Yeah. So, um, I, like I said, I've been doing the contract thing in Texas. And th- at that time, this was now be 2013. Uh, the wars had kind of dwindled down quite a bit and they weren't using as many contractors overseas as they had been prior to that. So, like I said, the company said, pat us on the back, said, hey, we're not going to really do the dog thing anymore. Here's a severance package. You know, good luck to you. So I spent pretty much 2013, you know, again, going, okay, what do I do? Um, you know, I came back to Florida, spent a little time there, worked at Bill Heiser's place again for a few months, uh, got lucky. And then, um, uh, you know, he kept me kind of busy for a little bit of time. Um, I go to a conference and I was going to teach and of all things, I end up having an allergic reaction. My lip was the size of, uh, gosh, it, it looked like I got punched in the face by Mike Tyson, the swelling I had in my <laughs> lip. So I couldn't actually end up teaching that day. So started, you know, once I went to the hospital, got Benadryl and everything was good to go. I was walking around the vendor booths and back when I was 
working as a contractor, I come across a friend of mine, Jeff Franklin, who had his business, Cobra Canine. And uh, I saw him at his booth and we were just kind of, you know, talking, catching back up. And I just said, hey, man, if you hear of anything, I'm available. I would love to, you know, I, I just need work. You know, um, the contractor life is live or die by contracts. And right now I, there's no contracts for me. So I'm, you know, burning through retirement money and everything else. And uh, he's like, hey, and this is this would be in June. So he tells me June I might need somebody in August. So if I do, I'll let you know. I was like, okay. Of course, two months go by. I, I had forgotten about he and I talking. And there's some irony here. Another cop who I was friends with, we worked together at the same agency. He was one of the young canine handlers. He had gotten out of being in law enforcement. I had hired him in the contracting world. He had been overseas working. He is now in BUDS uh, with Navy SEALs, and he is going through all the training and he would finally graduate with a call SQT August 1st. So I'm all jazzed up thinking about him graduating when I get a call from Jeff going, hey, would you be interested in moving to San Diego, get there by August 11th and start at least temporarily for a couple months uh, being a instructor with the SEAL teams with their dog program? And I was like, how fast can I get packed up and get out there? So that's when I, I was, I was out of Florida in, in San Diego within probably, uh, a week and it worked out great. Cause I got to see my best friend, Chris, you know, right after he graduated buds, we were hanging out, I'm working the dog teams, um, and he's kind of hanging out with us because at that point he was waiting for his new orders to go on to, uh, the additional training that he was going to receive. So I just started training dogs with the SEAL teams. And within, uh, the, after about three or four months there, I kind of end up being put into position of, uh, we didn't really have titles, but they just said, Hey, you're the senior. We're going to lean on you to be, you know, kind of handle the stuff and oversee the training and be our main point of contact. So it eventually turned into a title that we coined ourselves as senior trainer or whatever you want to call it. So I just started, it was awesome. I mean, to the, those guys to get to work with them, um, is fantastic. You know, it's, it's an honor of mine, something I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Some of those guys I got to spend time with and be friends with and work their dogs with them. And, but because of the standards that they have and what they need dogs to do, means you have to step up your game as a trainer. You can't be lazy. You can't just get away with the status quo. You have to ensure that when they leave San Diego and they go on their deployment, that if they go use that dog in any way, shape, or form, it will do as it's as it's trained to do. So that really kind of put a fire in me to make sure I could do the best I could possibly do as a trainer. And if there was things I needed to adjust, I would need to adjust. And I'll, I'll add this. I have to go back just a little bit to Texas because my next, I would say, transformation as a trainer was when I was in Texas. I started dating this uh, girl. She worked at SeaWorld. And she was watching what we were doing training-wise one time. And she questioned me and, and asked me, like, well, why don't you just use a marker or a bridge? And I'm like, what, what is that? So she tells me. And right around the same time, Mike Ellis was starting to do videos with uh, Ed Frawley from Learberg on marker training. So she said the word marker and bridge. So I quickly kind of searched it. I see the videos. I buy a couple of the videos that, uh, at that time that were out by Mike and Ed. And I could see, you know, Mike showing it all in obedience. And I can see what the girl from SeaWorld was, SeaWorld was saying to me. 
and I could see how I could take the exact same thing, use a marker, and just apply it in detection. So I started doing that my last year in Texas, and then when I came to uh, Coronado in California with the SEAL teams, it again made really good sense for what we're doing. And they were already kind of doing it. They were they were applying it. It was just kind of you know, things get lost in translation when it comes to training. So timing was off here or there. So when I get there, I just kind of said, hey, we're on the right track, but we need to do it like this. Or this is the proper way of when you give the signal or give the marker, not when he's looking back at you kind of thing. So that really pushed me and it gave me an environment to really hone that skill. And then luckily enough, of course, that's where the Navy Mammal Program is at. So the dolphins and sea lions are there. So I, I wanted to find a way to meet those trainers. And luckily enough, a vet that we had, uh, we would call it Warcom. The Warcom vet was also the vet that worked with the sea lion program and, and the mammal program. So got me an introduction. I got over there and met Scott Clappenback. Scott Clappenback was is the uh, head person in charge as a civilian over that program. And ironically, he is a reserve deputy sheriff of Orange County, California, and works a dual-purpose narcotics dog. And yeah, he done, does. And, and has done so for what? I think it's, what, 28 years now? No, I mean, I, mean, it's, it, I know it's up in at least the 20s or high teens. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, he's been, I mean, that guy works more for free. I'm saying 1,800 hours a year as a reserve. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can tell you there's guys that I know that don't even put in 1,800, and he's working hard. Oh, yeah. uh, I've worked with him several times, and then, you know, but the, the cool thing is, is, and that's probably one of the coolest things that I've gotten to do in my law enforcement career is to go and go with Scott and, and, and watch these, these animals. But um, how did that shape, and, you know, uh, shape your, um, your training style into what we see today? And then I also would like you to actually talk about Scott. Talk about Dr. Hare. Yeah, so all that happened at the same time. So like like I said, I meet Scott, and of course, he and I become fast friends because we're speaking the same language. He's all about marker-based training. Of course, all the sea lions and dolphins are all trained the same way, and he obviously utilizes the same concepts with uh, training the dogs. Um, And at, at that exact same time, I'm watching Nat Geo Wild one evening, and I see this show called Is Your Dog a Genius? So, and on that show is Dr. Hare teaching people with their pets how to do these little cognitive games on how to tell if their dog is strong in memory or is their dog uh, able to be, what do you call it, a maverick. It would, it would do things when you weren't looking. It would problem solve because you weren't uh, paying attention, kind of things like that. So, but I, what I saw was there's these different exercises where the person is pointing and based on where they point, um, the dog either follows that pointing communication, that gestural communication, or it doesn't, and it goes to where the item of food is at. And I see this, and I say to myself, okay, this has a good parallel to detection dogs. I need to know more about this, and I need to get into it. So I just search his name on the internet, find him, or what I think is going to be him, shoot an email, just tell him what I do for a living, and 48 hours later, I get an email back from him. Hey, let's get together. Let's talk. Um, fast forward within a couple of weeks. He's in San Diego. 
we get together. We The Office of Naval Research funds a grant. He'd already done a grant for ONR before. So we get a grant going to help us. The goal turns out when I was looking at it for detection turned out to be more about uh, the ability to select better dogs. And uh, so we took that those tests and started applying them to whenever we would go out to look for dogs. So I would still do all the traditional testing, right? That how we would pick dogs, you know, how good's the bite, how good, how motivated are they to search and and hunt and play and environmental, are they sound there? But what I did now is once I narrowed it down to my let's say my top two picks, we would then do these cognitive tests that were a deviation of what I saw on TV, but more specifically geared for working dogs. So I started applying these tests, and even though it was a small number of dogs, we went from a success rate of selecting a dog to a dog reaching deployment at about 43%. That was about how many dogs that we would start with and then actually make it out to deploying. When we started doing the cognitive tests, that ratio went up to, I forget, but maybe 78% or 77%, a significant 30-plus percent uh, improvement on dogs being selected and making it out to the field. The side benefit turned out to be I was getting it done faster. I went from needing, let's say, 10 weeks down to seven weeks. We had a clear 30% reduction in training time needed to get the dog out the door and ready to go. And that was a direct reflection of what we learned from the cognitive tests. Those tests gave me a path of what to expect training-wise and how to train that dog better. I'm now able to look at this dog and go, oh, this dog is strong in memory. Because you're strong in memory means I need to change things faster so that way you're working off of your nose or you're working in, in a different mindset versus just using your memory to solve the problem. I want you to make an inference to solve the problem. So whereas a dog who is strong in inference, I knew I could create basically learning puzzles and allow the dog to be successful because they would find ways to persevere or work through whatever barriers or things I put in front of them, uh, whether it be mentally or physically, uh, they could get through it and be successful and receive reinforcement for the task that whatever we were training. So I would train a dog faster, you know, and a dog who was really good at making an inference was able to get reinforcement faster because they would problem solve quicker. So, that really kind of set the foundation for when I my contract ended a year ago uh, with the Navy, and then now I'm out as a civilian and then teaching others this cognition and understanding it because we've never really looked at the dog's mind a whole lot when we decided to train dogs in detection or even dual-purpose dogs. We always looked at dogs through, like I said, the motivation and the environmental st- stability. So when you're, uh, you, something you mentioned to me once before, uh, and I thought it was really interesting was, uh, the failure rate that you guys had in the team. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was, and you did a really equated really good for the group that I was with. Um, you said something similar to the effect of what is the failure rate in buds? Yeah. And how it, we can kind of almost expect Mm -hmm. a similar ratio for the multipurpose canine program. How did this new new style, this uh, in uh, the learning canine cognition? How did that um, what, uh, uh, the numbers uh, increase greatly? How 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 many like days and weeks? I know we talked about 
um, percentages, but like time-wise, are we talking weeks, days? What, what are we looking at here? Training-wise, it's weeks. So what I really took away from it was that dog, let's say, that I saw that I really loved its motivation, right? It was crazy to play with whatever toy it was, and it would do whatever it took to get that toy. What I learned was some of those dogs are not mentally flexible to problem solve. So because of their lack of ability to be flexible to try something different in order to get reinforcement, we would waste a lot of training time trying to get the dog to stop doing that, whatever it was, to keep getting its reinforcer and try something different. Or I would, as a trainer, fail to understand that I need to make some other type of change. Because again, I didn't identify until, of course, weeks into training where I'm like, this dog is just stupid and stubborn. No, it's just not mentally flexible. And it's so driven and so aroused for that reward item that it just doesn't think properly. So now when I applied the, the cognitive test to begin with, I could see that that dog, before I even did any training, that despite that motivation being a really good um, you know, bonus or a plus for that dog, it a lot of times could end up being its detriment because then it would not be able to problem solve because all it wanted was its toy so bad that or the bite so bad that it wouldn't allow it to learn. So I now would pick a dog who I could see had high motivation but had the ability to problem solve or be mentally flexible. And just that alone, that concept and that ability for the dog to be willing to problem solve or try something different makes your training more successful and move a lot faster because you're not spinning your wheels or you're not fighting that dog's nature of just being so driven it can't focus on anything else so does this does this only work for working dogs or i kind of know i, I totally know the answer to this i just want to hear you say <laughs> it uh, um what else can it be used for it's used in everything honestly i i use this uh, i love going out to like i just did with you in san diego for the nose work people because like i said it's not just all about the two-dimensional pieces the memory and making an inference it also tells us a dog's laterality. Is a dog more left dominant or more right dominant? So if a dog is more, let's say, left dominant, their nose is basically two-sided. They have a left side and a right side. So a dog who's inclined to be left will use their left nostril quite a bit in searching and sniffing. They use both, don't get me wrong, but when they come into a space, they're going to be inhaling and taking information in more from one side or the other based on their inclination of, of their laterality. So, so basically it's just right-handed, left-handed. Correct. In layman's term. Yeah. So just knowing that may change how you search your room or may change how you let the dog search the room. So you're not trying to make a lefty or righty because you don't know, right? So whether it, it's that, you know, like I said, the dog's ability to be mentally flexible or the dog's laterality or the dog's memory because turns out some dogs have a great long-term memory, but they have a crappy short-term memory. You have other dogs who have a really good short-term memory and don't have a long-term memory. And again, having that information in front of you is going to help you train the dog better. So a dog with good short-term memory, you can then do a training equation with them, but then put them up 
bring them back out and they'll act like they've never seen the training situation again. It's like brand new to them. Where a, a dog who's got good long-term memory, you, you set up a training scenario, they do, let's say they do average, they do kind of crappy, and you, you just can't get that good note to finish on. Well, you put them up and you come back the next day, they still are going off that memory from that last session. Where the other dog was like, what, what did we do yesterday? I totally forgot. So a typical Malinois. Whoops, yeah. <laughs> so habit having that information when you train or before you train is going to make you more efficient as a trainer. And it's not stuff we don't know. It's just by now doing tests on purpose to tell us specifically about that dog in front of us is going to make us more efficient at communication and training that dog instead of just reaching around in the darkness and trying to figure it out. So, um, you know, we'll probably progress to the next thing now because it's going to caveat right into it. Uh, I want you to talk about the um, research and stuff that you've done with Texas Tech and uh, Dr. Hall and, and how that is kind of getting into now our realm in the professional side. A uh, couple of real big things for me, uh, cocktailing, that was like a, a wow damn thing uh and but it makes perfect sense if you really think about it um so if you can kind of get into that a little bit and um and the other stuff that you've done with megan and that kind of stuff yeah so as i you know you know the cognition was part of it and then now that i'm in i you know last year i entered the civilian world um or i got back into it i come across nathan hall at the cnca conference last year and uh quickly could he listening to him talk and the research he was presenting made a lot of sense. So I became friends with him, started communicating, went to Texas tech, um, met, uh, Dr. Paula Prada, who's now Dr. Paula Tiedemann. She's been one of my guests on the show. Same with Nathan, of course. Um, but meeting them and then hearing and seeing what they are doing, uh, in canine olfaction is absolutely important. You know, again, things that, we had assumptions on such as, you know, like I said, I used to do the cocktail method. I didn't think I wasn't a chemist. I didn't think about chemicals and how they react and what they do. But when they explain it to me, they're like, you know, not all chemicals are the same, right? And I'm like, yeah, therefore some chemicals are going to put off odor stronger than other ones. And if you put them all in a box together, a couple things can happen. One there's going to be a more profound odor. So even though you're reinforcing and you're rewarding your dog, the dog is going to be associating that to the more profound odor, not the other odors. Second thing is certain chemical reactions will happen when things are placed in the same area together. Certain things react violently. Certain things don't even react at all, but they create a different scent picture. So it, it, it enlightened me on the importance of keeping odors from talking to each other, at least yes. in, a, in a certain stage of training. You know, you want the, you want the dog to understand the clear picture of the chemical that is trained to detect, then start doing your mixtures later on. But by doing it one odor at a time or the one substance at a time, you're giving the dog the same level of reinforcement for each substance that you're training it to. And then once the dog understands and you've taught the dog that, of course, each substance has its own value or it's, it's all valued the same way. Then when you start introducing mixtures of all different types, the dog understands that there's a common chemical that despite the mixture that exists is, is present. The mixtures that you're talking about kind of lead me into my next portion of it. And me being a narc, a narcotics dog handler, mm -hmm. 
Um, and you kind of mentioned a little bit, now we're kind of going to uh, drift away from Dr. Hall, Dr. Tiedemann, although uh, um, this kind of goes with Dr. Tiedemann as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you had an interview with uh, Dr. DeGrief, and yes. um, one of the things that really stuck out with me, and I want you to kind of um, get on a little bit, is uh, our storage of our training aids, yeah. Um, yeah. surface areas, and things like that. And then I think, I know she talked about this a lot, and this just goes back to what we were uh, um, discussing about holding ourselves into a, a higher standard. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk about uh, ORTs. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. Six months ago when you started talking about ORTs, <laughs> I thought you were crazy. And uh, You were still out here in California. I didn't know if you were smoking weed. Um, <laughs> but I was kind of like, are you kidding me? Yeah. ORTs, and that, that's for explosive dogs. Uh-huh. But um, I'm listening to Dr. DeGrief, and it was about, um, and you said this as well, that our dogs are now sensors. Correct. Yeah. So again, going all the way back to Holland where science started entering our dog world, we are at where we're at now where there's a lot more science in our dog world and we understand and we employ our dogs as a sensor. So now uh, National Forensic Board calls a dog what it is. It's a sensor. And anything that is used as a sensor, so whether it be uh, your radar or your laser or a breathalyzer all have to be calibrated and then tested. So You, you know that no motor cop is going to be listening to this, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, everything to meet a legal standard needs to demonstrate or show that it is calibrated and tested. So um, currently, obviously, the detection dog world does certifications. And... The difficult part about certifications was, you know, depending on what association you belong to and things like that, the standards vary. So there is no unified standard in detection dogs on the professional side. You know, there's a lot of them that are very similar, but as again, as a whole, the nation does not have a unified standard. So because of that, uh, you know, with the way science looks at it is, well, Anything that we're going to do, we're going to calibrate it first. Make sure it knows and it can and whatever we're testing or whatever the equipment is, uh, show it shows its proficiency in identifying whatever it is. Right. So if it's a laser gun, it it can be correct at distances. It can be correct at speeds and things like that. So for a dog, we want to see that the dog only indicates to the trained target substances and ignores any presented non-target substance as well as correctly identifies when something contains nothing. So just saying that you you do a certification and you just put something out there uh, within your certification area and it has a blank area and it has a, um, uh, well, you say a distractor present or a proofing odor present, that area is slightly different, you know, whereas a ORT creates everything in the same condition. So that's your calibration. Each thing is presented in the exact same way, and does the dog only indicate to the trained target substance? So that so allows. These photo, rec- photo recognition tests are just like a a, a clarify affirmation that the sensor is calibrated accurately and performing as it should. Correct, and then your certification shows the sensor and the user in a operational environment doing their job with all the other things present. So searching vehicles, searching rooms, searching uh, parcels, 
whatever your environment is that you're expected to deploy with that dog, that sensor, the dog functions in those environments. So you start off with your calibration. Okay, yep, my dog knows the odors despite being presented with non-target substances or blank items. And then now I go into an operational environment with all the crazy conditions within an operational environment and the accuracy is still at a high level. So you, um, one of the things that we, you talked about with Dr. Tiedemann and Dr. Tiedemann talked about um, the, uh, our training aids and what is else is in there yeah. besides, especially on the narcotic side, yeah. um, which is wh- where I'm at, um, like cutting agents and things like that. What is giving off the uh, um, different volatile organic compounds that our dogs might be detecting. Mm-hmm. It's very important for no matter what you do, especially on the law enforcement side of things, though, to know that not just that the substance tested positive for whatever it is that you're doing, uh, whatever it is that you're, that you're let's, let's say it's cocaine, did it, not only did it test positive for cocaine, but it's important to know what else is in there and by knowing what other chemicals are there in that training aid that you're using, that you're able to show that you're proofing off of those non-target materials that are present. So, so you're not talking about purity levels. What you're correct. talking about is what other odors are present. Because I think that's where there's a lot of confusion. Yep. Uh, I know with me, probably until about, uh, well, until I was listening to you and Dr. DeGrieff talk about it, I was thinking that it had to be, okay, we got to send our dope to the DEA lab and have them test for purity levels because that's what federal sentencing guidelines are based on on a lot of stuff. But that's actually not the case. The case is what other odors are in there and we need to get those odors out in our training environment to proof our dogs off of them. Yeah, I mean, obviously, whatever chemicals are in, let's, I will just pick cocaine because it's easy one to talk about. Cocaine, you know, the... Average law enforcement agency is not training on pharmaceutical grade or pure cocaine, right? So that cocaine training aid they have is quote unquote stepped on or contaminated with or mixed with other substances to kind of prolong that kilo that they got initially. That so just was, a basically like, like cutting agent. Correct. You know, we're going to make more profit what, if we dilute. So we need with. to know what cutting agents are in that training sample. And then those cutting agents are also presented in your training area in the exact same way as the training aid you have. And the dog is only hitting on the one that contains the actual chemical, the methyl benzoate of cocaine. So that way you can show that, Hey, look, you know, I understand the cocaine I have isn't pure and it's got all, and it's this, that, and the other, but I can clearly also show my dog is not indicating on any other chemical substance that has been related to that training aid that I work with. So that's why it's important to know what is in your training aid and what contaminants are there just so you're better prepared and, and you're able to demonstrate your how you proof your dog off of non-target material. So um, let's, let's kind of t- go into that just a little bit uh, or something that's related to it. The, um, and I love this term, our training aids talking to each other. Yeah. Um, Explain that real quick in layman's term. And I, I know I'm thinking about this. This is kind of like review of like <laughs> all the podcast one and one. But the reason I'm, I think it's kind of cool is that um, we're kind of putting it in uh, knuckle dragger terms. Sure. Uh, um, you know, lowest common denominator, uh, um, cop talk for lack of a better term. Yeah. So talk about, um, you know, and um, also other 
storage uh, ways, like to talk about the bag and where we can yep. get on that kind of stuff. So, so the important thing is, you know, and, and I was just with an agency in Texas this past week, and I was doing a seminar for them. And, and our day one is I had them get each handler get their kit out and how they stored it. And they had a lot of things right, and they had some things that were not good. So they, I was able to point out to them, so storage, you want your training aid to be in a glass jar. There's different types of glass jars, and it's not the glass jar. So the problem with a mason jar is the lid, right? So the lid is two pieces. So the two pieces, if you open and close it quite frequently – then you're gonna the seal is not very good. So then now that is it's it's a heavily it's a, a lid that leaks a lot. So just change just getting a glass jar that has a um a, a, the correct lining lid. There's an abbreviation. It's not even uh, if those that are interested can email me and I will send you the links to uh, the the appropriate lid. It's basically it's Teflon based kind of lined lid, and that seals the jar and reduces dramatically the leakage of the substance. So we all understand that narcotics are typically, you know, given to the handlers and their evidence type bags and they're sealed up. Those then need to go to a glass jar. That glass jar with appropriate lid is sealed and kept in its own Pelican case, not a Pelican case with all the other ones, because as you open up and close all your jars and you keep the, putting them all in the same Pelican case, those training aids are all, all over each other, which is fine to have. I'm not saying don't have that. I'm just saying make sure you also have a kit, especially one that you're going to use when you start off a dog, that's that kit and that those training aids are as, I would say, the, re, the mitigation of contamination is at a low level. So you're keeping contamination at a very low level. The Those training aids are kept stored at proper temperatures, which is going to be at least room temperature or colder. If you could store your things in a refrigerator the, or a freezer, there's, there's different things on that, but I'm not going to say this. Keep it cool. Don't keep it in the trunk of your car or the, the tailgate of your vehicle or in those big fancy drawers and the SUVs because what does heat do to any substance? Any well, it chemical. starts to melt it. Yeah, it changes it, it, it dramatically. It, exactly. So, again, have a kit that's highly contaminated that you don't care about. But also, it's important to have a kit where you have reduced or greatly reduced contamination levels. And then that way, when you're either introducing odor to the dog or during your routine training, put out or during your calibration and or certification, you know that this substance is not contaminated or potentially contaminated with any number of other issues that are out there. And it's not a training aid that is degraded so much because it's been kept in a hot car, uh, kept in poor conditions, and therefore it's chemically not even the same. Even though you think because the label on the bag says cocaine 28 grams, that it's still putting out the odor of cocaine at 28 grams. It, you, you run the risk of some sort of change occurring. And this is where those chemists come in, like Dr. DeGrieve, uh, Dr. Tiedemann, who can chemically, who as a chemist can tell you this is not good and this is potential problems. I'm not going to try to go that route. I don't have their education, which is why I interview them. So all of you guys can hear from the experts and email them directly because they will specifically tell you if you do this, then this will probably happen. If you do that, then that will probably happen. And uh, Dr. Tiedemann has already 
put together through Swig Dog and then with the Forensic Board now, best or better practices in how to put uh, and store your training aids? Uh, speaking of storing the training, we, uh, there's one thing, one thing we kind of missed, which um, uh, bags. Yeah, so the aluminized bag. So if you took that, let's say, uh, like I said, however you get those training aids given to you once they're weighed out and, and stored, and let's say, I'm just going to use, again, the evidence bag because that's the most common type one. You can put that in an aluminized bag, which then is seals in, and it, again, reduces a lot of odor movement and contamination. That goes in the glass jar. The glass jar is closed, put in a Pelican case. That Pelican case only has cocaine in it. The next one, meth. It's only meth in that one and so on and so forth. Same with explosives. I mean, the explosives are um, contaminated initially because most explosive manufacturers make more than one type of explosive. So in their factory, airborne is all the different explosive particles. Also, the place in which you purchase your explosives may store all the explosives in one gigantic you know, uh, indoor magazine. And so therefore, and, and I'm fine with contaminant. Like I said, in those situations, it's okay. But your job, once you get it, is to keep that mitigated as much as possible. And again, keep it from being in extreme temperatures. In the in especially heat related, because you're going to degrade something. Not everything degrades at the same level. So when we say we need to replace training aids every year, that's almost at a you know I wouldn't go any longer than a year. But unfortunately, and I understand it and I get it, there are many agencies, including the one I was just with, their training aids are already four years old, or in some cases seven years old. And then I tell them, okay, so if you got it from DEA, the potential is some of that dope might be 10 years old before you got it because that particular um, material had to be held through the appellate court cases that it went through. So, you know, we have to understand and have a better appreciation of what our substances are, how to handle them properly, how to store them properly, and and what is they're made of so that way we can – Again, with that sensor, have it best calibrated and best uh, utilized for the purposes that we have it for, which is identification of illegal substances or harmful substances when it comes to explosives. So let's take Cameron now. Okay. And what would Cameron now say to Cameron 1996? <laughs> um, and, and I think I've been pretty good at it, but just always keep an open mind. Um, be willing to evolve sometimes sooner than I thought I would. You know, I would like anybody else in the dog world. We will follow belief systems or methodologies, and 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 follow it as strong as a religion per se. Um, be willing to hear things uh, from others, even if it's not in agreement with what you believe at that time, um, because you know. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So all of a sudden, you know, some years later, you're like, "Oh, well, I guess that turned out to be correct." Um, and, and then again, have appreciation for science. And and I'm the first one to say there's a lot of science research out there that sounds good, but really isn't applicable to what we do, or it's missing major components to that line up for what we do. You know, you, you have a laboratory setting, which is totally different than real world settings. 
So though there is some good information, you can't just throw all the baby the baby out with a bathwater because there is some study that came out that says this. It's good to take the information in, listen to it, review it, but overall, at the end of the day, keep an open mind. And that's um, something I would say to myself. And, and I'm trying to think of something else, which would be just always, you know, follow your passion. A- and as painful as it was sometimes and some of the grief I would get from making changes in my life, you know, going from, you know, a cop going from here to there and then getting into contracting and dealing with all of that, you know what, at the end of the day, it afforded me some amazing opportunities that I could never uh, have had if I just kind of followed the traditional way of doing things, being at one place for 20 years and never moving on. Um, I've been lucky. You know, a, a lot of it was because of that moving around, put me in the right place at the right time and gave me a great opportunity, which now I have a platform where I can share that with everybody else. And I wouldn't have had that. Speaking of your platform, um, let's do some selfless promotion of Silver State Canine. <laughs> uh, what, uh, uh, I looked at your calendar and I know you're busy, but uh, what are the courses and things like that that uh, we can um, direct people to? Even the, the sports stuff, um, because that's, the, you know, that's big with me. Um, but and I know you have some handlers courses, trainers courses. Give us just like a, a, a real quick one minute commercial. Yeah, I mean, so 2020 is an evolution again for the business. So the way things are going to be set up now is Silver State is like the academy. This is where you come to Las Vegas, you go through your handler school or you go through the trainer school. We will also offer uh, seminars here at Las Vegas that are under the schoolhouse. Ford Canine, my company, is going to be the mobile version where I go out to you uh, and I travel all over the United States and Europe and other places to do the seminars and workshops on cognition and detection through cognition, as well as some of the, uh, you know, I still get called out to do tactical operations uh, or integration of canine into a tactical operation kind of concept. Um, So, Ford Canine runs the podcast and does all my mobile and seminar-based uh, education. Silver State Canine is your academy and where you come to to get your training for handlers or trainers. And uh, there's also dogs available. So if you contact me, the, I'm not necessarily your typical dog vendor in the sense that I'm going to have a bunch of dogs in a kennel. We are kind of like your custom shop. You contact me. I may have a dog I'm raising or training at the time that I've already put on whatever odor that happens to be the same thing you're looking for. So because my numbers are much lower, I'm only doing two or three at a time. Those dogs live with me, uh, get raised in my house, go everywhere with me, get trained in the methodology and the science-based communication systems that I use. And then when the time comes, you come here, get the dog, go through the training and hit the door and go work. So there's that whole aspect now that I'm offering this coming up here. We've already done it sometimes in the, uh, this past year, but I'm really well, I got to see, pushing I got to see both the dog, both the dogs that you raised, that you raised since puppy. Uh, and I've watched them grow. Yeah. And uh, right now I would snatch up either of those uh, in a heartbeat. And it's uh, important. I mean, one of the big things and I, and I talk about on social media and things like that is we can't keep relying on other countries to produce what we need here in the States for dogs. So what I'm going to do is I'm done talking about it. I'm just going to keep demonstrating it. So you saw those two dogs. I did uh, two other dogs already this year that are already with their handlers. 
Right. I'm, I'm, in about a week, I'm going to pick up a German wired hair pointer, and I'm going to. Tra- he's 12 weeks old right now. I'm going to pick him up in a couple weeks, and I'm going to raise and train him. I've got two more dogs coming in uh, in January. Those dogs are actually already spoken for, but they're going to go through the training and living with me for a period of time before the handler gets it. So I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to take young dogs. I'm going to raise them. I'm going to show it on social media. I'm going to show it can be done, and it can be done cost-effective. And and not just me, friends of mine as well. Yeah, that's just the, you know, that, and I know a lot of it is, and a lot of agencies look at it as like it's not very cost-effective, but when we do puppy selection that's well i know that you got two fantastic dogs from mike subtle mm-hmm. over at logan house yep. those two dogs are great absolutely um, and, and you and you have uh, a great opportunity for you know with all your contacts and, and stuff but we also need to start thinking about breeding as well um not only just picking up the dogs uh working dogs here and raising them ourselves but we as uh you know uh a profession need to kind of take a step back from our old adage of it's a police dog. We can't make any money off of it, but I think that uh, breeders or vendors need to start having little caveats in their contracts that say something that the dog's going to be studded twice or three times, whatever the case may be, or as maybe even on an as needed basis, because we're running out of dogs, um, good quality dogs. Um, and we lose that gene once it starts to, um, once, once we, once we buy that dog, um, and put it into work here, uh, we lose that gene and it's, you're right. We got to start taking care of ourselves. We got to stop shooting ourselves in the foot and cutting off that ability to reproduce great dogs because there are genetics here. There's great genetics here. Oh my God. We have fantastic genetics. You know, those that ever watched the TV show, the prophet, the guy, Marcus Lamotta says, there's three things that make successful business, people, process, and product. We have the people here in the United States. We have great education. We're, I mean, there's, there's Europeans um, that have, access right there in their own home turf but many now are willing to come here to learn from those of us that um have something to offer and it's it's a community now it's not just one side or the other we are able to share no matter what so we have the people here with education we have the product the genetics exist here so we have the dogs that exist with great genes and we still have access to great dogs all over the world so there's the product and then there's the people the part that we're missing specifically here in the States is the process, the process of rearing those dogs, preparing them and putting them out. And there's always the constant fear of what do I do with these washouts and this, that, and the other. Here's the thing. Is not Europe a lot smaller land-wise and population-wise than the United States? And they don't have a heavy population of these dogs, all these washouts. Which shows that which shows that if you the process is right, your washout rate is going to be less. Also, just because a dog doesn't make a good detection dog, doesn't mean it can't be a great assistance dog or a dog for somebody sure. with, with PTSD. You know, or even uh, you know, and now the the sports side of things. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. There are people that are, are you know where it may not be a great narc dog or a uh, bomb dog, but boy, it'll get in there. And, and yeah, it may have an environmental issue that prohibits it from being a professional dog, but it's more than enough to be utilized or, or, or have someone have fun with it in, in the sport realm. So we just have to be willing. And this is the next evolution. Uh, uh, this is the part I'll leave everybody with is so the cognitive research with puppies is basically done. It's been going on for the past couple of years. 
Um, I now have a bunch of new videos and materials uh, from the puppy cognitive uh, research. Um, I've been holding it back because I've been asked to because the the papers in regards to this are going to be published here very shortly. Um, so in 2020, I will be now taking the cognition is not just going to be about adult dogs. I'm going to be showing the cognition from puppies, from weeks old to months old, what to do and how to do things and how to gauge things. So again, helping us with our process of rearing and raising dogs for working ability. Um, my whole goal in 2020 is to share that research that has been going on. Uh, with, and I'm going to have actually both uh, the people who have been doing the most of that, which was uh, Dr. Evan McLean and Dr. Emily Bray. I believe she's now married too, and her name is now Cohen. I'm going to have them on as guests on here, and we are going to talk about that. The puppy, the puppy part is our next wave that's going to be highly important in how we can identify good prospects for one avenue or another. And yeah, we've we, seen it, though. We've got some great kennels here, and I yeah. think the more people that are aware of it, um, the better that we're going to be. So uh, tell me, Cam, are you going to be doing anything with uh, the Sensible Canine in Las Vegas? <laughs> yes. I heard we, you were, so... Yeah, we're going to actually have some fun. We're going to do an 80s-themed nose work night. Uh, here at Silver State Canine, uh, a date yet to be determined. <laughs> uh, me and you keep going back and forth. We just got to finally hammer it down, and we will, of course, be putting that out there. But it's going to be all about fun. Uh, we may even do, or I know we're going to do, some demonstrations with uh, cur air currents and how odor may move and flow through different types of environments. So that way just people can, you know, for lack of a better term, have their scent goggles on and be able to see you know, air movement and how it can may be um, deceiving. You know, you may think it's really doing this when it is actually doing that instead, especially right, at exactly. the level of the dog's head. So we'll have you guys stand by for that. Um, uh, Sensible Canine's also got some cool stuff coming up with uh, um, bringing out uh, Mike Suttle in April to beautiful San Diego, uh, April 22nd through the 26th. Uh, believe it or not, all the working spots sold out in about an hour. Um, so, yeah, I had half of them sold out before I even announced it publicly because somebody somebody leaked somewhere. Uh, it kind of was almost like a Senate hearing um, that uh, it was it was coming out. So, um, well, Cam, it's been good to actually find out about you. Um, it was uh, and it was also a good kind of Cliff Notes version of all the podcasts. By the way, first one was still the best, from what I understand, the most downloaded. Huh, the um, one I interviewed you in at CNCA last year. Well, you know, you know. I couldn't help it, but yeah, exactly. Speaking of but which, the, we'll be seeing each other there in a few weeks anyway. Exactly. And for those folks who uh, haven't had a chance to get themselves to a conference, CNCA is a great one along with also HITS, uh, which I think is going to be in Phoenix or Scottsdale this year. Yep. Um, good times. And uh, Kim, thanks for spending some time with me. Um, and thanks for letting us know uh, about your background. Finally, everybody gets to hear it. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. You know, it, it is a little uncomfortable to be on this side of the microphone, but uh, I think it's a great way to start 2020. My first, uh, which will be, this will be episode 20 uh, of 2020 for season two. It gets to be an interview where you guys get to hear about me and learn about me because you're right. I do get emails asked, uh, you know, about my, you know. My, well, yeah, how, it's how like, well, who here? are you? Yeah, how did I get to where I'm at now? So, because there's people that want to do the same thing, so. All right. Well, again, I appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks in uh, 
of Palm Springs. Sounds awesome, my friend. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Well, that concludes this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you had a takeaway uh, based off my experience or the things that I have gone through and why you can see, for me, why it's important I share information with everybody, uh, why I try to keep an open mind and express different points of view, share how science has uh, grown quite a bit within our detection dog world, and the reason why moving forward um, I'm going to be doing things like the webinars and seminars and why Ford Canine is going to grow and uh, be able to share that information with you via the uh, the webinars I host with some of the guests that have been on Canine's Talking Sense as well as uh, seminars where I'll be traveling around the United States and in different countries. Um, so the whole purpose is to continue to share information to educate those willing to uh, try something new or listen or just get their skills even better. So all you have to do to kind of follow those things, whether it be the podcast itself or webinars or seminars, is go to FordK9.com, F-O-R-D-K number nine.com. On the calendar is going to list the various uh, seminars and where I'm traveling to. So you might see that I'm close to where you're at and then webinars and who I'll be hosting the webinars with and then how to sign up and be able to get those webinars. Silver State Canine, as usual, go to our website, check out uh, the classes coming up. The class this month um, is uh, bigger than I expected. Uh, I think right now we're at 14 dog teams. Um, uh, February will be another class coming up at the end of February and, uh, there's other ones already posted all the way through out until May. Um, so go to silverstatecanine.com and view that calendar. You can see the different two week courses or one week courses and even seminars that we'll have there. So any questions as usual, send them to me, Cameron at fordcanine.com. And I will get back to you as quick as I can. I usually try to respond to emails within 24 hours. Sometimes if I'm traveling, it's going to be a little bit longer. But please don't ever hesitate to reach out to me. Also, my social media feeds. I forget to talk about this or bring this up. But if you go to on Instagram or Facebook, just at Cameron Ford Canine, you will find me on both platforms. Uh, And also on LinkedIn, just under my name, Cameron Ford. But Instagram and Facebook is where I post a lot of either questions or videos or photos from the different events that are out there. So if you want to find me on social media, that's where you go to. So until the next episode, I'll talk to you then.